and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is the Honorable Justin R. Walker of the United States District Court for the Western District of Kentucky. So welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks very much, Brian, and thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's really a great pleasure and an honor. Uh, you will be the first federal judge on the Ipsedic Sit podcast, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. Well, I'm a fan of the podcast, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to this. Awesome. Well, for listeners who might not already be familiar with you and your background, I wonder if you could talk a little bit just about yourself and sort of the path you took to becoming a federal judge. Well, I grew up right here in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, down the road from you there in Lexington. Uh, And I was here until college, Uh, went to Duke for college, which was a very big conflict of interest in terms of my college basketball loyalties, but I do have to admit I ended up converting to being a Duke basketball fan pretty quickly and ended up getting engaged to my wife in Duke's basketball stadium um, about a year and a half after we both graduated. I spent two years in D.C. um, writing speeches for uh, then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld um, in 2005, 2006, and then uh, law school after that. law school at Harvard and back to D.C., uh, where I practiced briefly and clerked for um, then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh and for Justice uh, Kennedy after that. Um, I started teaching at the University of Louisville's law school in 2015, uh, and uh, it was a dream come true. I always wanted to move back to Louisville and live down the street from uh, from my mom, who watches our five-year-old kid. And uh, I thought that I had the, my dream job uh, for life um, if, uh, if this uh, particular gig had not come along. Uh, but uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, nominated by the president last year uh, to a district court spot here in the Western District of Kentucky um, and confirmed um, in, I guess, late October. Uh, so I'm about four to five months, about approaching five months on the job. And... Um, and uh, once again, uh, just as I felt before at, at the University of Louisville, I feel like I, I feel like I have uh, the job of my dreams right now. Mm. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about your first few months as a federal judge. What kinds of cases and issues have you been hearing? And were there aspects of the job that you found surprising or unexpected? Well, one thing that I have found in, in my very brief time on the new job um, is just how quickly the criminal docket moves relative to the civil docket. Uh, the criminal docket uh, is governed by the Speedy Trial Act, which requires that the prosecution take a criminal defendant to trial within 70 days of his initial appearance. Um, now, there are a lot of exceptions to that Speedy Trial Act clock calculation, and so it doesn't end up looking uh, like 70 days. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it does tend to move along um, a lot faster than a lot of civil cases do. And so as a new judge who inherited in the ballpark of about 300 uh, pending cases, uh, you triage, you prioritize, and because of the Speedy Trial Act, um, you end up prioritizing uh, the criminal docket. Uh, that has been um, an exciting part of the job, um, a part that... Um, 
you know, I've enjoyed so far. Uh, I had certainly never sentenced anyone before. Uh, it's a weighty responsibility. I take it extremely seriously, as I'm sure every judge in the world does. Um, but it's a, it's a challenge that um, it's, uh, I don't exactly know how to describe it, other than to say that um, in the 10 or so that I've done, um, they are some of the most, I guess, uh, challenging um, hearings that I've had. Um, and also in, in some ways the most rewarding, not because there's anything enjoyable about uh, sentencing someone, there's not, uh, but because you do feel like um, you're able to um, try to try to search for a just result, explore all the factors on all sides, um, and work really hard to get to um, a result that doesn't make right the crime that happens. It doesn't make whole any victim of the crime, uh, but it does, um, hopefully, if it's done right, provide a little bit of justice. Mm. Are there particular factors in that sentencing process that you personally think are especially important? And, you know, to what extent were you able to anticipate what that process would be like before you became a judge? I mean, did you, see, did you feel like you had any insight into that from your experiences, for example, as a judicial clerk, or was it something totally novel? We did not have a lot of sentencing cases um, at either of the appellate clerkships that I had. We had a we had a fair amount of criminal procedure um, at the D.C. Circuit and at the Supreme Court, but sentencing review is so just is um, so deferential to the district court judge. You don't see um, a lot of appeals, and then on top of that, ninety five or more percent of uh, criminal cases uh, reach the sentencing phase because of a guilty plea that almost always includes a plea waiver, or sorry, an appeal waiver uh, that precludes an appeal over the sentence. Um, so um, the part about it that I have found, I guess maybe the most challenging or um, the, have given maybe the most thought to is how much weight to put on what the defendant says at sentencing and how the defendant says it. And there's so many parts of our system, as you know, Brian, that depend on credibility determinations. I mean, we, we have a confrontation clause uh, because we think in part um, the jury will be able to determine the credibility of a witness better if the witness is there in person as opposed to if the jury is just reading a, a transcript. Um, we, ha we have a jury there in part to, to gauge credibility of witnesses. Um, judges often have to gauge credibility. And at sentencing, you have defendants who seem very sincere and how much they regret what they've done um, and how determined they are to go in a different direction um, and, uh, and how kind of aware and mindful they are of the harm they've caused uh, to, to, to the victims. And then you, you have defendants who sometimes seem less sincere. And uh, I am very skeptical of people's ability to judge credibility in those situations. It's not that I think I'm better or worse at it than the average judge or the average person picked out of the phone book or even the average uh, FBI agent or, or CIA agent um, who has to make uh, you know, crucially important credibility determinations on a regular basis. Um, I think that 
there is some, I'm not an expert in the field, but there is some literature out there that suggests no matter how much training you have, no matter what your job is, uh, that, that humans tend to be very bad about judging other people's credibility. And when it comes to sentencing, um, it's really something I think a lot about because on the one hand, um, you don't want to just sentence based on the defendant's criminal history and the nature of the crime. Uh, you're supposed to factor in um, what the defendant says at sentencing, how the defendant says it. And I do factor that in, and I think all judges factor that in. Some judges spend a lot of time, as long as 30 minutes maybe, with a defendant, talking to that defendant at sentencing, really trying to get a sense of who that defendant is. What, what, what I'm skeptical of is whether or not or at least how much that is improving outcomes in terms of um, just sentences. And so one book that's, that's been on my mind uh, that I've been reading recently is Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers. And um, it was recommended to me by a judge who was at one of the orientations with me about a month or two ago. And I was talking about this skepticism I have about um, human's ability to detect uh, sincerity from insincerity. And the judge said, well, you got to read this book. It's all about that. Uh, and it, it certainly is. Um, it talks about, for example, um, how Chamberlain and Halifax uh, believed Hitler because they felt like they really got to know the man. Um, and of course, they were being lied to the whole time. Uh, it talks about how people did not believe Amanda Knox uh, when she was accused of murder because she didn't act the way that people think an innocent person acts. And so I guess this is a long way of saying that I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned at my sentencing hearings that I don't reward people for being good actors. I don't punish them for behaving in a way that's different than we would expect someone to behave in that situation. And at the same time, uh, while I'm trying to do that, I'm also trying very hard um, to, to give them an opportunity, a real opportunity um, to, uh, to make an allocution and, uh, of course, I listen to it very closely, and of course, I take it very seriously. So I don't have an answer for this problem uh, that I think a lot about, but it, um, that's a very long-winded, rambling way of saying it's been on my mind, um, really, since my first sentencing hearing. Mm. I mean, it really does seem like a catch-22 in a lot of ways, because you want the ability for defendants to speak and thereby potentially mitigate the sentence in a just and appropriate way. But as you say, it's so hard to know exactly how to interpret and give meaning to what it is that they say. Do you find that this is a problem that comes down to like differences among individual defendants or is there like a socio-cultural dimension potentially at least to that as well? Or, or maybe a mix of both. And, and I wonder what, if anything specifically you try to do to sort of, get yourself in a place where you're comfortable about the decisions that you're making around sentencing? So I think one thing that I'm increasingly aware of and trying to be aware of is that not every person acts in a certain situation the way that we would act or the way that we would expect someone to act. And so just because um, a criminal defendant who's there at sentencing is not behaving in the way that the judge thinks a remorseful criminal defendant would behave. It doesn't mean the criminal defendant is not remorseful. 
the reverse of that is also true. Just because a defendant is, sta is standing there and behaving in a way that a very remorseful defendant would behave doesn't mean that the defendant is actually remorseful. Um, there's a, a study that, again, I read about just, uh, just yesterday, the day before, and the, the experimenter uh, brings in the people off the street. You put one person in a room with one plant, one, one planted person who's part of the experiment, and you start asking them questions. And then you leave the room so that the only people left in the room are the, the subject and the plant. And the plant says, I think the answers to the questions are on a piece of paper over there. Let's cheat. Let's go see him and we'll get all the answers right. And sometimes they cheat and sometimes they don't. That's not the experiment. Then they interview the subject afterwards and they say, did you cheat? And they ask some follow-up questions. And then here's where the experiment actually happens. They show those videos to, different, different, to a whole new group of people. And they say to the whole new group of people, who's lying and who's telling the truth? When they say I didn't cheat, who's saying the truth that they didn't cheat? When they say um, uh, I didn't cheat, who's lying? And it turns out that, that the group trying to gauge credibility is incredibly, incredibly uh, inaccurate in figuring that out. Um, in the ballpark of they get it right about 54% of the time. Uh, so, you know, about the same amount of time they would get it right if they were just flipping a coin. Um, as someone in the making weighty decisions about how long someone will go to prison, um, it's a, uh, I, I, I feel like I have to be very careful about not falling in, not falling into the trap of thinking, okay, um, this is how a person in that, be, in that situation should be behaving. And if they're not behaving that way then they must be X or they must be Y. Mm. Well, another aspect of the criminal trial process that is really important and also uh, in some ways kind of problematic is the, the plea bargaining process and plea bargaining on many different um, on many different factors in a game or many different aspects of a case. And, and I know you've been thinking about this issue. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about plea bargaining and fact bargaining and whether these present problems for the uh, administration of justice in, in the criminal sphere. When I was uh, teaching full-time at uh, UofL's law school, one of my best students ever wanted to do an independent study uh, the student was interested in becoming a prosecutor and we did uh, a year-long independent study about prosecutorial discretion. Um, a lot of the prosecutor's discretion, of course, comes from the ability to decide what is charged and then um, the ability to bargain with the defendant and say, if you plead guilty, um, I'll make a recommendation for a lower sentence. Um, I, I I, I think that there are strong arguments um, on both sides about the legitimacy of how important uh, plea bargaining has become in the system. What I did not appreciate as much uh, on the academic side is how often prosecutors and defense attorneys will not plea bargain, not charge bargain, but fact bargain, where they'll say, okay, if the prosecutor say, if you plead guilty, I'll agree to concede 
that, um, you know, there wasn't a gun uh, or the quantity of drugs was a certain level um, or, you know, pick your hypothetical. And, you know, the, the precedents out there are, I think, crystal clear that um, plea bargaining is allowed, charge bargaining is allowed. Um, my understanding is that they're, they're not so clear that fact bargaining is allowed. Um, and then the question arises, well, what, what does a district judge do with that? Um, and that's a, a question that's been on my mind um, and that just remains on my mind. Yeah, I mean, do you see any like potential constitutional problems with fact bargaining? I mean, to the extent yeah. that that's taking place. Well, it's, there's a separation of problems question, a separation of powers question. Let's say that Congress sets a mandatory minimum based on certain facts being present, and that crime, and then the prosecutor and the defendant uh, reach some kind of a, a bargain where they, they'll say, well, we're going to agree that the fact that triggers that mandatory minimum um, didn't happen. But the, what if the fact did happen? And what if it's in the record? Uh, what, if it's, what, if it's, what if it's in the discovery and it's what uh, is in the probation re report? And what if it's before the judge at sentencing? Um, if the judge says, well, um, I think, I think you are outflanking a policy decision made by Congress with regard to a mandatory minimum. Uh, and I'm not going to let you do that. Uh, then that can have, that can really upset the bargain that the defendant and the prosecutor have struck, uh, which is not only a problem in that case, but it makes bargaining more difficult in the future. On the other hand, uh, if the judge just goes along with it, uh, then you, you really have, um, I think, um, you know, arguably undermined um, a, a statute, a policy decision that's made by the branch of government that makes policy. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm not saying exactly where I am or where I will be on the future, uh, in the future on this, but I, um, I, I do think that, um, it's, it's something that I've given a lot of thought to. Mm. Well, so in an email, you mentioned some issues with uh, C pleas as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those are and, and why you think they might be something to be concerned about. So there's two, there, well, there, there are A, B, A pleas, B pleas, and C pleas. And um, we'll put A pleas to the side for a second. A B plea is where the defendant pleads guilty, there's a written plea bargain, and as part of that bargain, the government promises the defendant that at sentencing, the government will make a recommendation uh, for uh, a lower sentence than might otherwise be recommended. That's, I think, what most people think of when they think of a plea bargain. A C plea is a little bit different. At a C plea, the, the written plea deal says that the government will make a recommendation for a certain sentence. And if the court doesn't go along with that sentence, if the court sentences the defendant to more time in prison, then the defendant has the right to withdraw his guilty plea. Um, and then you start, you start from scratch from there. Uh, so the choice for the judge when a defendant enters one of these C pleas 
is to either go along with a sentence that the parties have agreed to um, or to risk um, uh, or to give the defendant the opportunity to not do the guilty plea. Different judges take different approaches. I'm told there are some judges out there who just flat out do not accept C plea. Uh, now, I'm not, not quite sure how they get away with that because the rules uh, allow for C pleas. I mean, it's, the, the C in the C plea refers to, a, you know, um, you know, a, a part of the rule. Um, at the other extreme, there are judges who will just accept basically any C plea. Um, you know, let's say that the, the recommended sentencing guideline ranges from, uh, you know, 10 years to 11 years. And the C plea says um, the sentence must be um, 18 months. There are some judges who will say, fine, uh, I don't care what the guidelines are. If the parties have agreed to it, I'm going to go along with the C plea. And then there are judges who are more in the middle. Um, and I, I think at this point, I'm more in the middle. Um, I think what I probably uh, will do going forward is consider all the factors that go into sentencing that they're listed in 3553A of, of the U.S. Code, um, the, as, as well as, of course, the, the sentencing guidelines, the, the non-mandatory sentencing guidelines, all the things that you consider that go into sentencing. Figure out what I think is the appropriate sentence for that case. And then if it is um, consistent with the C plea, uh, accept the C plea. If it's not, then reject the C plea. That raises the question, well, what does consistent mean? I don't think it means that it's exactly the same as what uh, the C plea recommended sentence is or required sentence is. Um, but I think it has to be, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to put a number on it, but, you know, if, if the C plea is 10 years and the, sorry, if the guideline is 10 years and the C plea is 18 months, that, that seems like uh, it's very frequently not going to be, um, not going to be a C plea that should be accepted. But many judges disagree with that. Mm -hmm. oh, do you have thoughts? Um, I, I mean, honestly, I'm, uh, I'm agnostic. I mean, I, I, uh, my, my, my inclination is to tend to want to see sentences shorter, but uh, I understand that that's, that's not your job. <laughs> um, well, but it's not my job to, to want to see them longer either. I mean, I have no, um, obviously, I think no judge um, enjoys seeing, a, you know, a, a, another human being sent off to prison. Um, and, no, and no judge wants it to be for a day longer than the 3553A factors um, uh, require or point to mm. I mean, the, the ultimate kind of test that I, that all judges are supposed to apply as citizens um, is, is it should be a sentence sufficient but not greater than necessary. Um, and one of the things uh, that uh, Chief Judge Stivers, our district's chief judge, uh, whose uh, who's chambers are in Bowling Green, told me um, in one of our first conversations that I don't. He said I don't want a, a, a defendant to spend one more day in jail uh, than than they should um, because. You know, I wouldn't want to spend a day in jail and, um, you know, it, you know, uh, they don't either. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, how do you feel about the amount of discretion that district court judges currently have in, 
in sentencing? I mean, it's obviously changed over the years. Do you think it's kind of set an appropriate place or do you think there's room, appropriate room for more discretion in, in terms of sentencing? I would not want to return to the pre-guidelines era. Um, so before the, before the guidelines were created, there was the statutory range, which is quite wide. Um, and what sentence you got could very much depend on which judge you drew. Uh, and I think that that, that is just um, extremely problematic. The, the, sentencing, the mandatory sentencing guidelines that Congress created, I think were an improvement on that. Um, because they did greatly decrease, uh, obviously, uh, the disparity um, between how different defendants were being sentenced. And they also, I think, went a long ways toward ensuring the sentences reflected what the people's representatives thought the sentences uh, should be. Obviously, the you know people aren't voting on the members of the Sentencing Commission, but the commission is, is supposed to be very much, um, you know, an, an instrument of, of uh, of congressional policy. Then Booker comes along and makes the mandatory sentencing guidelines not mandatory anymore, but they still stick around as non-mandatory recommended guidelines. Um, I'm very comfortable with that. Uh, I think it's an improvement over the mandatory uh, regime. Um, and it's also because it does allow judges some more flexibility um, when the case clearly calls for it when it would be truly a miscarriage of justice um, to not, um, not go uh, above or below the sentencing guidelines. Um, but it does not return us to um, what I would call the battle days of, uh, before there were any sentencing guidelines and uh, you know, what sentence you got, depending on what judge you got, which was really just um, you know, a, a luck or bad luck of a draw. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, so Justin, I mean, I, I wonder whether you think your time as a law professor and legal scholar has inflected in any way your approach to judging, especially maybe in relation to some of your colleagues who have slightly different backgrounds. Well, thank goodness for my colleagues. I mean, they have been a, a wealth of experience and information and guidance and mentorship uh, in my first five months. Um, I would hope that some of my experiences as an academic um, had influenced me as a judge in a positive way. Um, one, one thing that is very different uh, is the amount of time uh, that you can spend on your writing. Um, now, <laughs> you, I, I know from, your, from the quantity of your scholarship that you write a lot faster than I did when I was an academic, um, but all academics have the luxury to a degree of, um, of really drilling down deep um, and spending a lot of time um, on, on a large article or a book. Um, and it's something, it's a, that is a luxury that I think district court judges don't have. Um, we have enough cases and enough people waiting on our decisions that we have an obligation uh, to prioritize uh, speed, not at the expense of um, the quality of the legal reasoning, um, but 
uh, maybe at times at the expense of the, the creativity of the writing style. Um, you know, I, I will I will have decisions in the next few months that are that are very long that are that that may approach the length of a large article, um, or you know maybe not quite that long, but still pretty long. But I'll but I'll have a lot of decisions that are a lot faster, a lot shorter than that. And uh, I think that if you asked a lot of litigants, um, do they want you to get the answer right? Yes, absolutely. Once you've gotten the answer right, do they want it fast? Or would they rather have it slow and, and maybe a little bit better, uh, more more stylistically uh, written? I think they'd rather have it fast. Mm. Well, somewhat related to that, this is a question that's sort of been on my mind because it's, well, frankly, close to a lot of the scholarly work that I do. So um, some judges, anyway, have criticized and even penalized litigants for engaging in what they perceive to be acts of plagiarism. Um, often charging clients for work that the lawyers didn't actually do, but sometimes the the criticisms don't really reflect so much the overbilling so much as sort of a a criticism of the fact that the lawyers were copying in the first place. I I wonder if you have any thoughts on that as, as a judge. I mean, does it bother you if litigants are, are copying materials um and are there circumstances where you might be more or less concerned about that kind of behavior i have not given that a lot of thought um and it's it's not because i haven't seen motions that are very similar to other motions uh that the same attorney is is filing in different courts or that um you know possibly um other attorneys have filed in different courts um yeah you you are a, a skeptic of the whole concept of plagiarism. Is that right? Not just in the judicial context, but tell, <laughs> what this, do you think about plagiarism? Th- 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 this is true. Um, it just always struck me as very strange to see judges criticizing plagiarism on the part of attorneys, at least insofar as the work product they're producing is effective, which struck me as kind of relevant to the point you were just making, that like the parties here are looking for an outcome that's going to be ideally you know, consistent with their wishes, but any outcome is better than no outcome. And in in that sense, I mean, I guess it sort of seems like any effective filing is better than a more expensive filing. You know, so well, I, I push I, back just a little bit. I mean, I, I not to, at least to just clarify what I meant. I I don't know that any decision by me uh, is better than no decision by me. I think any correct decision by me hmm. uh, is better than any correct decision by me that takes a whole lot longer (laughs) um, with no real payoff for the litigants themselves. Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I totally understand. And it it reflects the point that I have, or the kind of the concern I've often had in this relationship. I mean, which is like, if a lawyer goes to their client and says, well, I could either file this, you know, a copy of this brief that's already been written and charge you for half an hour of work, or I could rewrite the whole thing from scratch and charge you for 10 hours of work. And, you know, I should really do the latter because it would be wrong for me to copy and just use this thing that already exists. I, I think most clients would be like, what are you talking about? Right. Well, so something that's similar to the, the topic you're talking about is the, the, the question of recycled uh, filings, not so much plagiarized, in that they were taken from other attorneys, um, but just in the sense they recycled an attorney 
And you see this on the government side uh, in criminal law and on the defendant side in criminal law, and I'm sure it happens in civil cases too. The attorney, let's say the attorney's name is Brian Fry, will file a motion and then a month later in a different case file a motion that has um, a lot of recycled language, if not entirely recycled paragraphs. Um, to me, the, the biggest problem there um, is not a kind of professional response, it's not so much an ethical problem, um, as it is if the, if the legal issues are really different, that attorney's brief needs to hone in on the specific legal question in each case and not um, paint, with, paint with too broad a brush. Um, I've noticed that some attorneys are much better on their feet than they are on paper. Um, and as, as you have probably noticed, uh, since you've probably been to a hundred times more academic conferences than I have, law professors often have the opposite problem. <laughs> they, they can, um, you know, they can write a, a thoughtful uh, law review article, um, but they're not exactly, uh, you know, communications uh, experts uh, when it comes to uh, talking. Uh, and actually, you don't have to be a, a, a law professor at a conference to see that. I mean, I'm sure plenty of, of students at every law school would say some professors are good at the podium and some professors are less good. Um, I think that um, I expect it, uh, I don't say expected, but um, in the world of appellate law, when I was clerking and when I was briefly practicing, there was such a high priority put on the quality of writing. Uh, and that's not always the case um, in all areas of trial law. And, um, and it shows, and one of the ways it shows is that uh, there can be a tendency to kind of recycle uh, motions and recycle arguments on paper um, that really aren't as powerful as they could be if, if the attorney took more time and, and wrote in a more precise way. Right. Yeah. And no, I think that's good advice for attorneys in general. Well, to pivot a little bit, I, I wonder if, you know, in the first several months that you've been working as a judge, you could talk a little bit about sort of how you use your clerks in your chambers and how you have and how you're kind of planning to kind of look for the students who are kind of the current law students who you hope will be your future law clerks and whether you have any advice for students about how to kind of make themselves stand out as clerkship applicants. Well, clerks are the best part of my job. Uh, and that, that is one of the things that has not come as a surprise to me. Um, it's a little bit like getting to teach a seminar every day with the students that you pick yourself. Um, and I think most, most professors would enjoy that prospect. Um, both of my former judges used to say that the clerks were the best part of the job. Uh, I, I always assumed they were excluding uh, me from, from that analysis, but I, I do think they meant it uh, in a general sense. Um, you know, we work in very close quarters. Uh, we see each other all the time. My door is almost never closed. Um, and there's not a single decision I make um, of any significance that I make without first asking a clerk for the clerk's opinion. And I don't always agree with the clerk. I don't always follow the clerk's advice. Um, if I disagree with it, then we talk more, we discuss more. Uh, just yesterday, clerk um, brought me a uh, brought me a draft opinion and um, 
I, I said, I, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think I, not just in, in terms of this point or that point, but I think, I think the, the result here is wrong. Um, so then we brought in another clerk and we talked about it. And I mean, that, that is just a dream come true to be able to talk with thoughtful attorneys, my clerks, uh, and try to figure out what the law means. Um, and so I, I, I love that. I think that, um, most judges use their clerks a lot, but probably not as much as I use mine. Uh, one of my clerks had clerked for a district judge and a magistrate judge before me. And a few weeks into the job, uh, she said it, it's, a, it's a little bit disconcerting how often um, uh, you, it's a little bit disconcerting how, uh, how, how much you ask, how often you ask what I think. Uh, and she said, it's not that you're deferring to me. Uh, you know, we disagree sometimes and you, you make your own decisions. But I think it, it came as a surprise to her. Um, I think it is, is, is different in my chambers than a lot of chambers with regard to the criminal side. Um, we were talking about sentencing earlier. Um, I have a, a clerk who takes the lead on um, all criminal matters. Um, I mean, the lead over other clerks. And uh, um, we talk about every sentencing question. Uh, and, um, I think that that's, uh, that's unusual, um, in part because I think a lot of clerks don't want the weight of sentencing on their shoulders. Um, and of course it's not on the clerk's shoulders. It's the decision's mine, not theirs. Um, but, um, it's, uh, I think it's the, the I, I think talking with the clerks, trying to figure out what the law is, um, having other attorneys in chambers, uh, who, care as much about getting it right as I do um, is just a great luxury and it, it really is the best part of the job. As far as how I, I hire, which I guess was the second part of your question, I made a decision coming into this job in part because I had taught at a school that was less highly ranked than, uh, than some other schools, uh, that I was gonna interview very broadly. Um, so that I would interview people who were very strong on paper, you know, if, if, I would, if, if they were interested in the job. Um, but I would also interview broadly enough that I would, would give somebody a, a chance um, who, um, who would be the best at the job, but maybe didn't look the best on paper. Um, and so my, my goal in my first year um, is to hire two clerks for the 2021 the 2022 term um, and to interview in the ballpark of about 15 applicants for that. Um, and I would like to continue to do this every year going forward. Um, it takes a lot of time, but I think it's worth it. Uh, one of my former bosses used to say that, you know, for every 10 hours or uh, I'm sorry, for every, uh, for every hour you spend on hiring uh, you save yourself 10 hours or 100 hours uh, down the line. Um, and I feel that way. Mm -hmm. Well, so Justin, in, in closing, um, I know there's been a lot of discussion of kind of the politics of the judiciary recently, as well as kind of moves to at least arguably try to police the kind of political affiliations of the judiciary. I wonder if you have any kind of general thoughts on those kinds of moves and whether that's an appropriate thing for the judicial kind of regulatory bodies to be engaging in. Well, 
you start with the premise, the, the principle, the almost first commandment, that politics have absolutely no role in the courtroom. Um, and uh, any halfway decent judge um, is vigilant um, to check any, uh, any political preferences at the door um, before, he, before he or she puts on a, a robe and decides a case. Um, that does not mean that um, judges should not be involved in the community in a non-political, non-partisan way. Um, they should be involved in the community in a non-political, non-partisan way. Um, if judges are interested in teaching, they should teach at law schools. Um, if judges are interested in learning, uh, they should go to conferences. Uh, sponsored by the administrative office of the courts, but also sponsored by uh, law schools and uh, private organizations. Um, and if they're interested in engaging with legal ideas, uh, they should go places where uh, groups of people engage with legal ideas. Um, one of those groups is the American Constitution Society. Um, one of those groups is the Federalist Society. Um, and I think it's extremely healthy uh, for uh, judges to um, be on panels, um, to be in the audience, um, to listen to uh, legal issues being discussed and to uh, participate in that discussion. Uh, you know, I'm not saying this in a vacuum, of course. Uh, there's, there's debate discussion right now about um, whether or not Judges should be allowed to be members of the American Constitution Society or the Federalist Society. Um, I feel very strongly about that. Uh, I, I feel very strongly that they should uh, be allowed uh, to join those organizations and to participate in events um, through those organizations. I think the bar is healthier. I think the bench is healthier um, when that happens. Um, and I'm, I'm one of, I think, um, more than 200 judges that has uh, recently signed a letter to that effect. Great. Well, Justin, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really a pleasure talking to you and learning more about your experiences during your first year uh, on the federal bench. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. You have a great uh, podcast, and I hope I have not uh, lowered the mean uh, quality uh, of, the, of the podcast uh, too much in our uh, time together. The Iron Mary Mac with others at her back, commanded by Buchanan and Grandio. From Norfolk started out for to put us all to rout and to make an end of Yankee Doodle Dandy-O. The Cumberland went down, Minnesota ran aground, which made the Yankee cause look quite deserted oh When hot three hearty cheers, the monitor appears, and the music struck up Yankee Doodle Dandy-O. The rebel shot flew hot, but the Yankees answered not. 
till they got within a distance neat and handy. Oh, said bold Warden to his crew, boys, we'll see what we can do. When we fight for little Yankee Doodle Dandy, oh. That song I learned about, I should suppose, 60 years ago in Elizabethtown, which is a very small village in the Adirondack Mountains, Essex County, New York, about eight miles from Lake Champlain. It was then sung by boys of my own age, a few, and uh, I not, know nothing more about it than that. I think possibly it was sung by my uncle's uh, hired man who had been in the Civil War, but that I'm very uncertain of. I don't know where we boys picked it up. <laughs> 